Once again, welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Papp and Reggie Rizou bringing you some of the more interesting stories of the day. On today's episode, why we humans may owe our relatively short lifespan to the dinosaurs. Another overdue book returned after more than five decades, and a Belgian family stumbles upon an ancient artifact from the lost city of Pompeii. Plus, This Week in History takes a look at a Christmas TV movie classic coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, the quest for immortality is an age-old theme amongst humans, and while the Fountain of Youth was never truly discovered by Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon, there is at least one modern-day scientist who believes humans were originally destined to live much longer lives than we currently do. Until the dinosaurs ruined it, of course. Joao Pedro de Magalhães is the chair of molecular biogerontology at the University of Birmingham in England, and his lab studies aging and longevity. He recently put forth a hypothesis that suggests mammals, of which humans are a part, of course, were originally built for longer life cycles. However, the reign of dinosaurs forced mammals to speed up their reproductive cycle, which consequently eliminated key longevity genes. Of course, there's no point in living a long time if you're just going to be eaten by a dinosaur. Now, per a report from Popular Mechanics, Dr. De Magalhães posits that in order to survive amongst dinosaurs, mammals may have actively evolved away from long life in favor of faster reproduction, something he refers to as the longevity bottleneck hypothesis. Within the paper published in the peer-reviewed journal Bioessays, Dr. De Magalhães writes, quote, My hypothesis is that such a long evolutionary pressure on early mammals for rapid reproduction led to the loss or inactive of genes and pathways associated with long life. I call this the longevity bottleneck hypothesis, which is further supported by the absence in mammals of regenerative traits, end quote. While noting that humans, elephants, and whales theoretically have the potential to live longer than most other mammals, Demoglyaz believes every mammal is still living under genetic constraints dating back to dinosaurs. Quote, evolving during the rule of the dinosaurs left a lasting legacy in mammals. For over 100 million years, when dinosaurs were the dominant predators, mammals were generally small, nocturnal, and short lived, end quote, pointing to the example of reptiles who maintain a much slower biological aging process than mammals. Demogliais hypothesizes that during the Mesozoic era, mammals either lost or deactivated genes associated with long life. The pressure to stay alive simply eliminated those genes. Okay, uh, a few things I'm going to opine here for a moment that I, that I would like to call out upon reading this. My first thought was humans and dinosaurs did not live together at the same time, so how on earth could dinosaurs have affected humans in this matter. And the more I thought about it, uh, I assume that's why Dr. Demagoliais specifically calls out mammals in general. So felt the need to point that out because this makes more sense if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, i.e. mammals evolve because of the threat of dinosaurs and humans eventually evolve from those mammals, thereby maintaining some of the genetic traits that come with them. And rereading the article in Popular Mechanics, that seems to jive with the fact Demogliais also believes the loss of certain enzymes tied to the Mesozoic era limits many mammals' ability to repair damage. He cites the examples of enzymes tied to skin restoration due to ultraviolet light damage and the fact that mammal teeth don't continue to grow throughout their lifetime like reptiles. To be clear, this is just a hypothesis, but it's one Dr. Demogliais believes 
explains a number of phenomena in modern-day mammals, including, as we said, humans. So, Reggie, I'm not really sure what to uh, take from this, other than the fact that I'm not going to live as long as I perhaps would like to, as uh, is probably the case for most everyone on this Earth. So as much as I would like to live longer, I am happy that things like mice have a shorter lifespan. I, I would hate for a mouse to sneak into my house and live there for like 50 years. You know, that would, that would just be terrible. So <laughs> there, there's some parts of this that are good. But I do wonder as we develop, you know, our science and learn more about our biology, if there is a way to reverse this, if this is true, reverse it so we do live a longer lifespan. Well, there's no doubt that's something scientists are studying and how to increase longevity in humans. So to that point, to that question, if it can be done, I suspect at some point we'll probably find a way to make it happen or the medical community will. Although looking at some of the human race, should it be done? <laughs> that is the billion dollar question. A few weeks ago, we mentioned a book that was 45 years overdue. Well, word must have gotten out that libraries have mostly gone fine-free because now in Pennsylvania, a book was returned after 54 years. Chauncey Brewster Tinker's classic Beowulf was checked out in January of 1969 from the Sewickley Public Library and finally returned earlier this month. Fines at the library used to be five cents per day until the item was returned, which could have led to a $1,000 fine. Although the library said usually when items were gone too long, they would just charge the original cost of the item. Since this book was purchased in the 20s, that fine would have only been 98 cents. Library officials said as long as the library users return borrowed items, their account will be cleared and they can continue to check out materials to their heart's content. End quote. So I guess this person is in the clear to get some more books. Now, not as egregious for a late book, but a Nancy Drew book was returned about 20 years after it was due. This one took place in my neck of the woods, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. The Sun Prairie Public Library posted on Facebook that Caroline Keene's Nancy Drew, The Case of the Vanishing Veil, was returned with a sticky note explaining why it was so late. According to the note, sorry to return 20 years late, exclamation point, exclamation point, found in my parents' basement. I have fond memories of going to Sun growing up. Thanks for all that you do. The Sun Prairie Library added that it is an excellent time to remind everyone that the library is fine free, end quote. Now, if you are curious about the longest overdue book in history, well, at least in recorded history, according to many books, that title belongs to the Law of Nations by Emmerich de Vittel to our first president, George Washington. He checked it out in October of 1789. It started accruing fines a month later. It was finally returned about a decade ago in 2010. That means it was overdue for 221 years. <laughs> if you take inflation into account, fines would have been around $300,000. Now, it was members of the Mount Vernon estate that kind of returned the book. They gave the New York Society Library a replica copy that they purchased online for $12,000. The library did absolve the overdue fees, though. And speaking of fees, the largest recorded fee that was actually ever paid, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, was $345.14. Days and Deeds, a book published in 1906, was checked out by Emily Canelo Sims in 1955 and wasn't returned until 47 years later when she found it in her mother's house. She did return the book along with the check for the late fees. I have to say I am very disappointed in our first president. 
checking out that book, <laughs> never returning it. Well, who would the fine transition to? Does it his follow estate. his lineage if they were, yeah. in fact, going to try to pursue that, that amount of money? I think that's why the Mount Vernon estate took care of it, because that's where the fines would have gone. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> still, paying $12,000 for a replica book and giving it back to the library? That's, that's a lot of money still. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Uh, I, I wonder what ha- what might have come up that President Washington was more focused on, uh, aside from returning his, his overdue book. Nothing important, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, it feels like we've heard a lot of stories like this in recent weeks, so stop me if you've heard this before. A Belgian father and his son were stunned to discover that a souvenir they purchased in Italy back in 1975 was discovered to be an authentic artifact from the ancient Italian city of Pompeii. 80-year-old Raphael de Timmerman and his son Geert de Timmerman recounted their trip to Italy nearly five decades ago, during which they visited Pompeii. While exploring the historical site, a man approached them and offered to sell a souvenir, a set of intricately carved stones depicting a scene. Now, the carved stone scene found its way to the family's stairway, where it remained largely overlooked until this year. As Raphael prepared to move out of the house, Geert decided to have the piece appraised. Specialists from the Gallo-Roman Museum were called to inspect the stone scene, and much to the family's surprise, they were soon after visited by police, who drafted a report revealing the stairway decoration was, in fact, an authentic Pompeii artifact reported stolen half a century ago. Geert told 7 Seer 7 News, quote, it's a bit crazy to think that tourists have looked at a replica while the original has been hanging here all this time, end quote. On Christians, a Belgian politician emphasized officials' eagerness to see the artifact returned to Italy. For his part, Geert promised to comply with whatever plans authorities devised, but expressed his hope for some financial compensation. I get it, Geert. Pompeii, famously destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD is now an archaeological site safeguarded by the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, aka UNESCO. It feels like we have a story like this every week now where someone unwittingly pulls something out of their closet or off their wall, and it's worth a lot of money. Hopefully, in this case, for the de Temmermans, they, they will see some level of financial compensation, although I guess I don't really know if it's owed to them at this point. After all, they did just pay for a souvenir 50 years ago. Maybe they'll just get their money back for the souvenir. And <laughs> I'm tempted to go through my house and look to see what I can find. Like, is there something I bought on vacation? But then I realized I'm too cheap. And whenever those people come up to me, I just say, no, thanks. Not interested. So I will never have anything nice to sell. Well, also, I don't know that I have anything from 50 years ago hanging in my house. I just I haven't had enough time to collect something like that at this point in my life. But maybe one day, maybe one day we'll find something and we can take it on down to Pawn Stars. Before we head to this day in history, I do have a quick update on the lost tomato from NASA. They finally shared an image of those lost tomatoes. It turns out there were two, if you don't recall, last week. It was revealed that tomatoes, once thought eaten by astronaut Frank Rubio aboard the International Space Station, were found after eight months. Rubio insisted he put the tomatoes in a plastic bag, and he thought he secured them, but they were nowhere to be found. In the image now shared by NASA, the tomatoes are indeed in the plastic bag. They appeared to be squished and dehydrated with no visible signs of microbial or fungal growth. The crew has since tossed them. And I do have one complaint about just tossing them. They've been in space with no fungal or, you know, like rotting or anything. 
maybe you should have studied them to see what's going on there. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, Reggie. If, if for nothing else, I feel like there'd be some sentimental value to the tomatoes that, that <laughs> yeah. first came from space. I suppose you have to get rid of that stuff at some point, but fair enough. That being said, I am not a scientist, and I would hope someone much smarter than me would have said that if that were indeed something that could be done. And if you do have a weird fascination about seeing squished tomatoes, uh, I'll have a link on our show notes for you to take a look. <laughs> what a way to put it. Taking a look at this day in history, well, tis the season for Christmas movies. We covered Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer for this day in history on December 6th. That came out in 1964. Well, now it's the 67th anniversary of the release of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It first aired on CBS on December 18th, 1966. The animated special was directed by Chuck Jones and featured the voices of Boris Karloff as the narrator and June Foray as Cindy Lou Who with songs by Albert Haig. The TV movie is based on the Dr. Seuss book, which was published in 1957. The first airing was sponsored by the Foundation for Full Service Banks. CBS aired it every year since until 1988, when it moved to cable, playing on TNT, TBS, and the Cartoon Network. The WB, if you remember that network, brought it back to the airwaves in 2001. ABC took over the rights to air it in 2006, then NBC took over the rights in 2015. Their deal allows them to air it twice, the night after Thanksgiving and Christmas night. If you didn't know, there were two sequels to the film, Halloween and Grinch Night, created by ABC in 1977. That one actually earned an Emmy. And The Cat in the Hat Gets Grinched, also from ABC in 1982, although it was produced by Marvel Productions now known as New World Animation. Huh, that's interesting. I had no idea there were sequels to How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and like everyone on this planet, seemingly, I, I have seen it a million times over, but not once have I seen Halloween and Grinch Night or The Cat in the Hat Gets Grinched. I'm going to have to go do some digging on online after this tonight, Reg. Yeah, I originally wanted to make fun of him. Like, you know, those sequels sound terrible. But the fact that one of them won an Emmy, it can't be horrible, right? You wouldn't think, although maybe some sentimental value creeping in, too, for people who grew up with the Grinch. Maybe, maybe. And as for the Marvel productions, uh, that, that's not the Marvel Studios you know now. They did create a couple Marvel cartoons, but they also had a lot of, like, Transformers, G.I. Joe. So when you think Marvel productions, it's not the same as Marvel Studios. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Reggie Rizzo with Marcus Path. If you have any thoughts, you want to email us, let us know what you're thinking. Coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Otherwise, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>